Hello and welcome to Peace Lab, the show that explores the face of Anabaptist peacebuilding in the 21st century. I'm Hannah Heinziker, Executive Director of the Mennonite Inc. and one of the usual co-hosts for this podcast. And today you'll notice something different. Instead of being joined by my usual co-host Jason Boone, I'm excited to be here with Jenny Perez Castro, who is the coordinator of the Women in Leadership Project and a communications associate for Mennonite Church USA. And she also is the host of this week's Peace Lab conversation which drew in a number of leaders of color from across the church to talk about a recent definition of what it means to be a peace church that was developed at the Hope for the Future gathering. And then they got into so much more in their conversation too. So thanks for being here, Jenny. Yeah, thanks for having me and giving me the opportunity to co-host this podcast. This conversation blew me away. It went down so many different roads and I feel like people were willing to share vulnerably and honestly and say some really tough, important things. So I hope people listen all the way to the end for sure. But for our listeners who may not be familiar yet, tell me a little bit about the work you do with the Women in Leadership Project for the denomination. Yeah. So I've been uh, working for Mennonite Church USA for the past two years, uh, coordinating the Women in Leadership Project. The Women in Leadership Project works to dismantle patriarchal systems in Mennonite Church USA by empowering women to live out the call of God on their lives to increase their capacities, and to contribute their wisdom to congregations, conferences, agencies, and institutions across the church. So we work to network women. Uh, We work to create resources for women in leadership, um, and then generally to empower women across the church. And one of the big ways that you've done this recently was a conference that was last fall, right, in November? Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. So I've got um, the power gathering. You want to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that? Yeah. So we um, we pulled together. We organized a women doing theology conference, is what what we've called them, um, coming out of a a history of women doing theology conferences that have been uh, organized by different Mennonite organizations since the seventies, I think. And so in two thousand fourteen was the first time the Women in Leadership Project posted that gathering. And that was All You Need Is Love. Um, and so we talked about in, in the 2016 gathering that we titled I've Got the Power. That was kind of the theme. We explored power dynamics uh, in various contexts. I think a lot of times it's hard to talk about power. It's We shy away from believing even that we have power. And I think what we sought to do was to really explore and tap into the power that we do have. Because in all of our various situations and spheres of influence, we have power. Now, whether we want to admit it or embrace it or not, that's a different story. But I think what we really wanted to do was challenge the women that were gathered, because it was a women's gathering, challenge the women that were gathered to explore where their power lies, um, what that means for them, and how they can use it for the good of all to empower others. That's right. And there were even superhero capes, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> super, superheroine capes, I guess. I yes. So interestingly, I think when you and I first started having a conversation about what this episode of Peace Lab could look like, we weren't necessarily thinking that it would be all women talking to each other. Right. But right. that's sort of how it developed as we thought about who was at Hope for the Future and who was influential in developing this kind of prophetic call to the church to live into this definition of what a peace church is and does. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to talk about that, what that process or why these women came to mind. Right. So as, as, as we were talking, as you and I were talking, and I was reflecting about what happened at Hope for the Future, especially in, in this Black Lives Matter track, it was really clear that people of color came And I think this is going to be named in the conversation, so I don't want to give too much away, but the people of color came together very powerfully around this framework, this idea that we need to define for ourselves what a peace church means for us in order to engage with our white brothers and sisters, leaders in the church, to really talk about this is what it means to us, what does it mean to you? And And it felt really clear that in that space, women played a very powerful role in naming, in pushing forward, 
and, and creating this framework, this kind of discussion piece. And so I felt like that, that was significant. I think, I mean, for good or for bad, a lot of times women in a lot of contexts do that, that work. And so I wanted to give space, <laughs> create space um, for, for women to talk about what that felt like mm. and what, what that was like there. Right. I think I have felt really convicted uh, to name very blatantly that there is a disconnect that we have as Christians regarding what we believe, what we say we believe and value, especially regarding women and their role and their personhood in their place in society. I think I've seen it in churches. I've seen it in, in my work with the denomination. And I see it in the results of the presidential election about what we say we believe and value, who women are, their voice, our voice, and then, and then how that is practiced in the world, in our lives. Well, I'm so excited for um, people to get to listen to this conversation. If they want to engage, you know, if they come out of here inspired and want to engage the Women in Leadership Project, where can they find you all? Yeah, so we have a webpage on the Mennonite Church USA website. Uh, it's MennoniteUSA.org slash WLP. Perfect. Thanks so much, Jenny, for being willing to co-host this. I'm really grateful that you said yes. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. All right, today I have the pleasure of talking with three incredibly wise leaders from across Mennonite Church USA. We have Calinthia Dowdy, Associate Professor of Youth Ministry at Eastern University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Director of Faith-Based Initiatives at Philadelphia Fight, an organization that provides primary care, consumer education, research, and advocacy for people living with HIV, AIDS, and those at high risk. We also have Regina Shan Stoltzfus, who is Assistant Professor of Peace, Justice, and Conflict Studies at Goshen College. And we have Sue Parker. She's co-director of Reconciliation, a peace center that equips Korean church leaders to serve in ways that promote unity, forgiveness, and peace in Los Angeles. She's also co-pastor at Mountain View Mennonite Church in Upland, California. Welcome. We're so happy to have you on Peace Lab today. I'd like to start um, talking about Hope for the Future, the annual gathering of leaders of color across Mennonite Church USA. Uh, Regina, as a member of the planning committee, can you tell us a little bit about the gathering, its history maybe, and, and the purpose of it? Sure. Uh, this was the fifth, fourth or fifth gathering this year, and it started as a conversation among several people uh, who were working in Mennonite institutions. They happened to be, uh, I believe they happened to be all men who were just having a casual conversation and about what it was like to be people of color working in Mennonite institutions. And the more they talked, the more they discovered this was a fruitful conversation, if only for the fact of camaraderie, sharing experiences, learning from one another, and quite honestly, to dump, you know, some of the difficulties. They, to their credit, quickly recognized that they were a group of all men having this conversation. And so I got pulled in, um, I believe, along with Iris de Leon Hartshorn uh, as conversation partners and also beginning to wonder what would it be like to have more voices to provide a space for more voices across the church to come together to talk to one another, particularly because most of our institutions have just a couple of people, maybe a handful, but people who feel very isolated from one another. And so the initial idea was simply, let's come together, let's see each other, let's talk to each other and um, share our experiences. And so the first gathering was just that. And it was clear at that first gathering that part of the work that needed to happen, we wanted another gathering. That was clear too, that we wanted to have another gathering. 
but it was clear among the participants that inviting especially younger people or people who had not been in the system very long in to hear the stories of older people but also perhaps to to do some mentoring but but i think if my memory is correct to ensure that younger people had some sort of support system from each other and from people who had been around a lot longer, just in terms of making it easier to be in those institutions. The original gathering, I don't think it, there was a, a long-term plan and it sort of one year led to another as the possibilities of what this gathering could do unfolded. And eventually, as we know, I think by the third gathering, the idea to invite white sisters and brothers as part of the gathering was something that came to the fore. Yeah, I think the first time I attended Hope for the Future was the first year that uh, white leaders from across the church were invited to, to participate. So I've attended Hope for the Future for the last three years, I guess. But this year there was there was a different mood, it seemed, uh, a different feel. Do y'all wanna talk about that? Sure. <clears throat> Um, this is Calinthia. Well, first off, I think I will start with just speaking for myself. I've attended all five, I'm pretty sure it's been five, five gatherings of Hope for the Future. And I found myself thinking, particularly this year, going, what's going to be different? That was question number one. And number two, for me personally, was why do I keep going to these things? Because Honestly, for me, and I'm not saying there had not been change. I'm sure there, there probably was, but nothing that was noticeable to me. And so it began to feel like, you know, kind of a rote exercise. This is something we do every year or every other year to kind of keep uh, issues around uh, race before the Mennonite church, but who really benefits in all of this? You know, kind of asking myself these questions and and feeling like at this point, nobody was benefiting. Uh, and if anybody was benefiting, it was white people. So I came to the gathering um, pretty tired. And I just said, you know what? I got nothing to lose in this. It's nothing. And so I, I, <laughs> I just wanted to see some, some action steps and to see people of color really own the space and take it over. I didn't know how that was going to happen, but um, I knew, for me, I knew there was a difference between the first two gatherings where there were only two uh, people of color, which felt very energetic and uh, warm and just kind of fun to see everybody and feeling that the space had shifted, but understanding why white folks needed to enter the space. And so, so this year, I, I just thought we, you know, something has to be different. Um, and I had made up my mind, this is the last one I'm attending because it's kind of a waste of my time and resources. And for the most part, I pay for myself. A couple of times a board, a board paid for me, but there was certainly a restlessness. I, so I think that's, I'm speaking very personally. I do think overall, there was probably a spirit of impatience amongst people of color, a feeling of tiredness. And I, I do think the, the millennials um, who, who frustrate me and who I adore, because millennials kind of come and say, you know what? we're tired of this. I mean, millennials just kind of, hey, we don't need, we don't need this. You know, they'll tell you that. Uh, whereas, you know, in my generation, we're like, well, we must labor tirelessly with, uh, with the church and we'll take steps, you know? So I just love talking to the millennials. The young folks keep it real for me. And, um, you know, I just think some, not all, some of the millennials in the space also had a feeling of, you know what, Black folks are dying, and that's why Regina's piece on Black Lives Matter was so significant. And what is the church doing? What's really happening? Um, so I, I think that that, that kind of um, I think that kind of spirit was there, and that definitely added to a different kind of energy in the space this year. Yeah, and, and this is Sue, and I'd like to just add, in addition to everything that Olympia said, the political climate, the new president as well as the administration, I think, set a different kind of uh, sense of urgency and a sense of restlessness that was not there. We had talked about these kinds of situations within the church, but framing that the church issue in the larger um, context of what's happening in the country just made it more um, urgent and more desperate 
I think there was a sense of heaviness um, and gravity of what was happening that um, that I felt. And I think um, having Ruby Sale there for me was truly a big motivator for motivation for me to get there. I'm coming from California all the way to the East Coast, and that gets really tiring. And for me, again, personally, this is the 25th anniversary of the Los Angeles uprising. And so I needed kind of inspiration with all of this kind of thing happening um, all around us. Where are we going to go and where am I going to find the hope? And I needed to be inspired and I needed to move, but didn't know how and where and what to do. So having Ruby Sales um, there was that push factor. And then, of course, I think the relationships that have been built in the Mennonite community and recognizing that that this has been almost a tradition for us to meet together was another big force for me to to be there. So participants at Hope for the Future, since the the white leaders have been invited in the last several years, we often meet for an extended period of time in, in caucus groups people of color and white caucuses. And this year, the people of color caucus met for an entire day and a half before the white caucus joined the meeting. Participants were invited to take part in one of three tracks. Uh, One track explored sexual abuse and HR policy in the Mennonite church. One track explored uh, the future of Hope for the Future gatherings. I think naming some of the the tensions that y'all have named, Clinton and Sue about like people of color valuing the time together, but what does it mean? Like, where do we see the results um, of this work that we do together? And so visioning for what, what gatherings will look like. And the, the, the track that I want to talk more about, um, Regina, was the track you led um, about Black Lives Matter. Can you describe uh, what your goal was setting out as you envision this track? Yeah, I can try. Um, And I say try because it shifted as I was, you know, before getting on site and thinking about what I wanted that to be. One of the things about these kinds of gatherings is you don't know, you, you don't know what it is until you're there. And so I prepared something knowing that I would be willing to shift it and not use it. And that's, that's what happened. Um, because people could choose what track that they were going to. I didn't know if I'd have five people or more than five people. And so thinking about what that would be like, I suspected that it would be more, even though it was people of color, that it wouldn't only be African Americans. And so, you know, how do I, what kind of responsibility did I have to, to take Black Lives Matter as to do honor to it as a movement, but also expand upon and connect to other people's realities and movements. And so thinking about all of that going in, what I decided to do was to to read the first couple of pages of what I had prepared, which was setting a context for the movement and just quickly talking through how it came into being, why it came into being, and Um, talking about Black Lives Matter, the movement as a moment in history where, uh, as Sue indicated, comes to where there's a lot at stake. And what I walked into that space with was a lot of urgency about what, what does it mean to be a member of a historic peace church in this historic moment where Black Lives Matter has emerged as for some people a very controversial movement. For me, it is a lifeline. And to say to my sisters and brothers in this historic peace church, in this moment, in this historic moment, why are we even here? What are we doing? Um, And it, it felt important to me to name what was at stake for me. Like I, you know, love black people and it feels like there's a lot in this world that indicates that many people do not. And so what does that mean for a peace church? Are we, as Calinthia says, is this a collective waste of time to even be in this church 
um, so that was the the backdrop and and what it what it evolved into with that kind of opening was uh, what became for me a very sacred space of people sharing um, stories of of pain but also stories of hope we were in a circle and circles are important and so just holding you know I'm one of those people that talks in terms of holding space and so it felt to me like we were holding space not only for each other but for all of the people who made it possible for us to be in that circle that is all the people that made it possible for us to be alive and still breathing and so the day that we had together before the circle widened was was it was hard space but it was but it was also very beautiful and sacred space uh, for that sharing of stories for that sharing of tears and there was laughter in the space as well and so uh, that felt really good and powerful and necessary and and it and it was something that could only be what it was because of the people that were there like I was given the the responsibility to sort of set the platform but then the people who were there made it what it was with with their sharing into this into the story into the into the circle all this work happened before coming together with the white caucus this was the people of color caucus together exploring what black lives matter um, means you know for us as people of color and so coming out of that this track produced a definition of a peace church i think connecting kind of that urgency and that uh, that desire to name what it means to be, why we're a part of this church. So I'm going to read that. Uh, and I, I think I want to invite us to talk a little bit about what it means for us, what was important about it. A peace church recognizes the Imago Day in all humanity. It not only prays, it takes action. A peace church responds to violence inside and outside its doors. A peace church stands with Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock, LGBTQ people, immigrants, and against all forms of violence. A peace church empowers disenfranchised and marginalized people. It understands multifaceted forms of violence, systemic, educational, and environmental. It is more than the absence of war or protesting war. This definition came out of that track pretty organically. My understanding, yeah, was that this was not, like, as you explained, something that you planned or said, hey, we're going to talk about Black Lives Matter and then connect it um, to Peace Church or de defining. Yeah, Sue, can you talk a little bit about um, your experience of, of the process that led to this definition, like your participation in this track and, and what you experienced in that room? I'll try. Um, again, I think coming from um, the LA riots, 25 years, understanding this uh, pitting against the Koreans and the African Americans 25 years ago, um, it's been a big homework in my lifetime to figure how, how do we do this and how do I understand what's happening and how do I even stand with Black Lives Matter? You know, I so desire it, but then how do, how do I do this? And so I went with uh, I went in carefully, wanting to hear and to see points of connection. Where can I authentically just not stand because I should, but because I must. And so I went into that space and it was powerful. It was difficult, like um, we had shared before. I think the point when Regina talked about Michael Brown and his body, on the ground um, and his parents unable to reach and and hold and to touch his own their own child that was a real eye-opening i've heard this but not the way that regina can tell it you know and to really read that that incident hit me hard and also hearing one of our participants who has an african-american child who's also autistic um, that kind of inter intersectionality I had not thought of before. And so she had said, if you ever get stopped telling her son, um, tell them that you have autism 
and tell them that your father is a police officer. And I just thought, my goodness, how, how do you navigate when you have these kind of intersectionalities? And so I just felt like this part of a mom, part of a parent, um, kind of crushing me and to realize this is the place, this, this must matter. What's happening does matter because these are my our children. And so that was the process that I went through as I was sitting there um, in conversation with a lot of the other people who were there. This definition of the peace church, I think a lot of us have been grafted. We've, we've chosen to be part of the Mennonite church, um, understanding peace church in a specific way. And I think a lot, there was a sense of like, okay, we have committed. We're not going anywhere. We have, we have uh, committed to be part of this church. And yet what we have seen or have experienced doesn't fully embrace how we understand um, and have, have uh, grafted into this church. So then I think the, the process of what does it mean for us to be a peace church kind of um, organically grew and then it was written down and then it, it still, I think it doesn't fully say everything that we wanted to say. And again, I think this was a framework that kind of, that, that stemmed from that meeting and, and I think it's a good beginning for us to talk. I think, I hope that we can bring this definition um, to the larger church to discuss, to talk, because again, this is not our final, you know, final definition, but a place where we could say, this, these are the things that we've talked about. These are the things that have, that we as people of color, and not, again, you know, the people who are gathered there, there doesn't embrace all of the voices of, all people of color, churches, and Mennonite, but that, um, there, that there was a voice created. And um, I think we need to start um, having deeper conversations about this. Glenthea, I wonder if you could share um, your experience of that, of that space and the process that kind of resulted in, in this definition. Um, you talked at the beginning about coming with a decision that, or with naming the decision that, this will be your last time coming. And um, yeah, what was your experience like in, in, this, in this process, in this track, um, these conversations? Yeah, I, uh, I work in, the bulk of my work, at least when I'm not in the classroom, is in urban communities. And I work with a um, population who would be economically challenged. I was told people don't like the word poor. And so when I hear some of their views on violence and what matters to them, I can even include myself in that growing up in an urban community. I mean, generally war on a national level or international level is not the first place folks go when we talk about violence. Folks talk about violence that's happening right outside their doors. They talk about educational violence. And some of the things we named, um, I use a book by Alice McIntyre. Uh, she's a social scientist and she talks about various forms of violence. And violence isn't just interpersonal, but it's also educational, environmental, um, uh, structural. And I've learned to think about violence in, in broader ways. And so, uh, so violence that's happening on our streets, those are the violence that's happening to women, the violence that we've seen by the arm of the state, the police in our communities, who've been killing black men and women steadily for the last number of years. Like that's real, that's immediate. And so this historic peace church, the Mennonite church, um, is also a historic white church. And so when they created this document about a historic peace church, it wasn't thought, they weren't thinking about people of color, they weren't thinking about poor people, they weren't thinking about women, um, they weren't like thinking about uh, violence on urban streets, right? They, they wanted to be folks who just did not sanction um, going to one country, going to war against another country. And so the church is no longer just a white church, right? And some might, some might argue it's never been just a white church. I don't know. Um, but there's, uh, you know, there's plenty of people of color um, who represent the Mennonite church globally. And um, this peace document has to represent their experiences as well. So, um, so it's gotta be, it's gotta be reworked. Um, it has to center um, other lives. So those were some of the things I was thinking. Of. I was thinking about folks, I've, folks I talk to every day uh, who live lives of violence. 
I was thinking about trans prostitutes who I talk to on a daily, who live their lives in fear, right? Try to make money, trying to do what they need to do to get by, but also have to navigate violence, right? Um, so I, I was just thinking about peace and violence in, in those sorts of ways as some of the, at least as some of the words were coming to me as we were trying to collectively put together um, this document. So yeah, I think, I think that's the real piece that we've got to think about violence in other ways, um, not just war, uh, not just national or international war, but, but, uh, but that people are living lives of violence every day and that they have to navigate these things. So what, it means, what does it mean to be a peace church in the midst of that reality? We can't be, we, folks can't be invisible anymore. It's, it's just unacceptable. So I'm, I just decided if I'm going to hang around, now Sue, Sue spoke her piece. Sue said, we're here, we're not going anywhere. I say I'm here and I could go somewhere else. I just, that's, that's just my position. Uh, but, you know, I, there are things I do like about uh, the Mennonite church. That's why I hang out, you know? Um, and I think that it can be, we can be so much more, so much better. And so I want to, I want to add my voice to the mix, but you know, I, I, I'm trying to remain hopeful. Yeah. I've been hanging out for 20 years. Mm-hmm. We talked about earlier how many of the participants at Hope for the Future named they chose to be a part of the Mennonite Church. And, and, and we've talked in our conversation today about how we want to have this kind of conversation with Mennonite leaders um, about, you know, this preliminary definition, about the things that we have been talking about that matter to us. Do you sense that there is, or even for you personally, is there hope that a conversation can happen? Do you sense an openness from our denominational leaders to explore this with us? I will just say, I'll try to say it briefly and invite others to speak to this as well. But when we ended the circle of people of color um, with that um, framework of a definition woven into that conversation was this question, what is at stake for us? And that was the question that we wanted to bring to the wider group once uh, the white leaders joined us. And then also the next day when the when, when all three tracks would be meeting together. And it was disconcerting to be met with such silence. Um, and I understand in part what some of the silence was. It's, I, I know what it is to enter into a space that has already been in motion and people have been in conversation and they're catching you up and, and the content is heavy. And so I get that, but I guess what I would have hoped for would have been more willingness to process with us what this meant. And so I, I still sit with that circle of silence that, that got to be very uncomfortable the longer it went on when when the question was asked and if and if i'm remembering it wrong i would invite people to to correct me or to add your memory of that but in that moment it felt devastating to be met with that silence when asked the question what is at stake for you and how can you join us in this conversation so yeah that's that is what i carried out of that space um, I'm, I'm remembering that again. <laughs> I had forgotten that. And I, I resonate with you, Regina, on that. It is, it, it is, it was. Um, so yeah, that um, was an interesting place to, to leave, I think, right? What's at stake for the church? I, I, I left the gathering not sure. The one thing I was, this, this is what I was happy about when I left the last Hope for the Future. I, the thing I was most joyous about was that I felt like for the first time, perhaps, um, the people of color who were there, at least 
appear to speak with one voice. Now, I don't know what everybody was thinking internally, you know, but I felt that we really came together this time in ways that, that may have been um, lacking for various reasons in the, in the past. And so, and so I went away feeling like some good work was done. Um, however, I wasn't sure if the people of color group was completely heard or, or completely understood uh, by the, the white group. And, and maybe the, the other part of me said, maybe I'm asking for too much. Like, how much can people really understand if it hasn't been their lived experience? You know, I, I don't know. So I, I came away a bit conflicted, but definitely um, content that some good work had been done in the, in the space. And I don't know what comes next. Like, I have absolutely no idea. I think also for the first time, I've been, I've been uh, connected with um, various white churches over the last probably 25 years at least of my life. So I came in as a, a young, young person. And um, for the first time, I am realizing here in 2017 uh, how traumatized I have been over the years. And trying to remember um, <laughs> how did I even carry some of the experiences and some of the microaggressions that I've experienced over the years, whether it was working in a, teaching in an all-white institution, I've taught in two, um, or being a part of um, a majority white church, uh, been a part of two, um, and, uh, and just kind of going along as if I could deal with, just, you know, just kind of brush it off and keep going as if I could deal with um, some of the, uh, particularly of mic microaggressions that have happened over the years. And now, here as a middle-aged person, I'm realizing how traumatized I really am um, and having to work through some of that, having to work through all of that and, and figure out what my next, next steps are personally and what is worth my very life. Mm. And I'm not trying to be overly dramatic. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Cynthia. I think that that you speak a truth like that is experienced by many people of color who choose to to participate in Mennonite churches, institutions, work with Mennonites. And I wonder like what comes to mind is like is has it has it been worth it? We all cho chose to to join yeah, we, we chose to be a part of this institution, of this church. And, and I think we've all experienced trauma, pain, hurt as a result. I've heard many people, when I've asked people of color, like, why do you keep doing it? Where do you find the, the stamina or the desire? What keeps you going? And many say, well, this is my church too. Like, this is my church. I wonder where you all are at, where, like, has it been worth it? That's a big question. Maybe I should, like, try to break it down. Like, has it been worth it? I mean, Have you seen results? I, 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 I would answer that question in terms of that's a good question, I think, but it's not my question anymore because as I've thought about, I've thought a long time about, so where would I go? Because this is... I mean, my story might be a little bit different than other people in that circle. I, I grew up in a Mennonite affiliated church, so I didn't, I choose to stay. I didn't choose, I didn't choose it. My parents chose it. My mother chose it. Um, and I chose to stay. And I obviously chose to stay because I've worked for a number of Mennonite institutions and I work for one now. Um, but as I think about the question, you know, what, what my own theological commitments, my spiritual grounding, my people, I don't, there, I don't know, I'm not saying that, yeah, this is where, because this is the best that we've got, but it's like, institutions are institutions, churches are churches, and maybe I'm lazy, but I'm not going to go find another system right now 
that doesn't that doesn't preclude me from doing it in the future but it is sort of like this is this is my spiritual home these are my people and the places that there are places within the system that work for me there are people that i connect with outside of the four walls of the sanctuary but often it is within the four walls of the sanctuary and so um, i have people across this church and other um, places where I can I can talk about these things and people know what I'm talking about. So yeah, there is that barrier of yeah there there's some there's some leadership there's some there's some power stuff going on that 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 blocks some of the things that many of us within this system would like to see changed. If we're talking about racism, if we're talking about sexism. We're talking about heterosexism if we're talking about class and material wealth and and all of these kinds of things but i have conversation partners that i have found in this place and so and for me that's the value i i actually don't hang my hope on the church as an institution in any system i don't think the mennonites are going to save me i don't think the methodists are going to save me but i also recognize that for me there is still some, there's, there's some good in institutions. I guess that's what makes me not a very good anarchist, right? Right? I'm not an anarchist because I recognize, uh, for me, I need the framework. I need, you know, somebody developing a curriculum so that, you know, there's that part of it. So yeah, that would be my sort of long-winded round the garden path answer to that. I'm not holding it too tightly anymore and right now that's kind of working for me. Yeah, I have frustrations. Yeah, there are things that I would like to see change, but I'm not hellbent on can you say hellbent in a peace podcast? <laughs> on working myself to a nub to make that change happen. Like the places where I feel that I my best energy should go, that's where I try to direct my best energy. Yeah, so for for me, I, I said I'm not going anywhere because um, my husband and I come from a different background. You know, we come from Korean Baptist and Korean Methodist, and no, not Methodist, Korean Presbyterian, and there is something in the history of the Mennonite church that has pulled us here. And we know we were disappointed in some of the things that, that we have experienced. And yet there's something really amazing um, within the people that I have met. Like Regina said, it's not so much the institution because we're recognizing that there's some there's some serious faults, as with all institutions. But man, I get to hang out with some awesome people. And I think the hard part now is to say, how do we be a prophetic voice um, and also be pastoring along um, our local churches as well as the larger um, Mennonite church? So I need, I need all of you guys to help me along. Um, as I tread these new waters, new steps. And I'm accompanied by great people, especially women in this denomination that have really um, mentored me as well as, um, yeah, and younger millennials, Goshen students, you know, that, that I have come to love and that I could be part of their journey as well. I think it's worth it. Keep going. Yeah, if I could just real quickly piggyback on on that piece that you said toward the end, Sue, about the not wanting to leave others. Like, I also feel that responsibility of um, just as, as I have gained from being part of various communities, I also don't, you know, I don't, for whatever it is that, that, that I can offer, I do feel like, yeah, I still want to do that. And here is, here's a place where I know the landscape and I know the, like I have these connections. And so if I'm going to do this work, yeah, I can, I can keep doing it with, with the people that I've met along the way, which is not to say that there won't be 
there are other awesome people outside of those circles, but I have relationships in, in this system that I value very much. Yeah, I'll, I'll, um, I'll agree. That's the only thing that holds me are the relationships I've made over the years. Uh, not the institution, not at all. And I do think my story is uh, maybe a little bit different in that I did not grow up in the Mennonite church. Um, I, was, I was a full-grown adult when I um, stepped into this by accident. Um, I got a teaching position at Messiah College and there were these Mennonite folk around. And so, yeah, so I didn't grow up. I grew up in the Black Baptist Church um, and so I can relate uh, when Regina says that you, you, you really are, what you grow up in is kind of, it just becomes a part of you for better or worse. And so when I step into a Black Baptist church today, I still feel very uh, warm um, and at home. However, <laughs> you know, uh, certainly some of the sexism and gender issues in those spaces are enough to, to, to keep me out. There's always something. But I, I'm more eclectic. I like, you know, I've been hanging around the fringes of the Mennonite. Some people don't even, like, you're, you're Mennonite? You know, which I don't even know if, if I should identify that way, quite frankly. But theologically, there are things that I am attracted to um, in the Mennonite church. And certainly the friends that I've made in the, uh, particularly the oldest friends I have are those Damascus Road folk. Um, from many years ago. And so uh, folks who have challenged me on learning and analysis of race and, and what that means and how to live that out, you know, that's, that's all been within uh, the Mennonite, Mennonite church. So, so there is some good in it for me, for sure. I, I think I'm just at a place in my life where I am. I'm just, I'm very critical of most white, all white institutions. Um, I'm just never sure they really have my best interest at heart. And so I have to keep that before me um, because it hurts too much. Like, you know, it, it, it hurts. And yes, I am an angry black woman. Yes, I am. I own that. And, I, and it, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. But yeah, I do value the friendships that I've made over the years within these circles. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit about something that many maybe all three of you have named about um, connecting with women. And I specifically invited only women to this conversation because at Hope for the Future, I was struck by how vital women were, um, how vital you all were in creating this, um, this, this framework and creating this definition um, and articulating what's at stake for people of color in the church, for challenging the wider circle. Kalintha, you talked about how you sense that people of color spoke with one voice. And I think like the mouthpiece was women. So of course, this is of particular interest to me in my work with the Women in Leadership Project. I like to talk about women of color as change agents within the church, our impact historically, and even now, if you'll have thoughts about that. Yeah. My experience and observation on many levels has been that women are doing a lot of the heavy lifting and are more recently being recognized for that. And historically, um, you know, being allowed, and I'm putting scare quotes around the allowed, um, to do that. So yeah, it's, it, as Calinthia said, church systems have this problem of, of gender and thinking about gender roles. And so, you know, we are, I think each generation of women has been able to do more publicly than, than our mothers and grandmothers and, and the women who came before us. And, and so that's been a good thing. But, but I think it's also true that women have always been part of what makes, <laughs> you know, what makes these, these systems go. And the, one of the things that I'm, that I'm aware of, um, because I'm paying attention to it um, in terms of my own work, I'm paying more attention to it in my teaching, is the investment of the expectation and the investment 
of emotional labor that women do. I think that we do it. I think we are not the only ones that are capable of doing it, but I think that we have accepted that and that it, ha it has come at a cost to people of all genders that the expectation of that has happened. So I am, I am looking forward to a time of you know, us being able to clearly recognize and celebrate the contributions of, of women, of the mentoring of the girls that are coming along behind us. I'm really excited about that. Um, but also, what does it mean for, for, for men to be cut off from that? And I'm sorry, there's a train going by now. <laughs> to be cut off from the permission of, of doing that part of the work. Because I think tending to our, the part of us that is, that is spirit, the part of us that is emotion, the part of us that, that I think energizes and feeds the work of peace and justice making is something that, that is just vital. And, I, and that is what a lot, is not the only thing that I see women doing, but I, I think that that is one important aspect of the work that uh, women do as pastors, as leaders, as professors, that gift of, of holding space and of naming peace work is thinking about some parent's child laying in the street and, and needing, you know, needing to, to touch that child. So yeah, I say that at the risk of <laughs> boxing women into this thing that is we are more than that and we bring more than that, but it's something that I'm, I'm thinking a lot about uh, these days. I wanna hear from, from y'all about women and our impact in the church. Yeah, could we talk about, I guess, specific challenges for women of color in our churches, communities, or perhaps gifts of women of color in our churches, communities, world? Or how have you experienced women as change agents in the world? I, I can't really speak to my own experiences. Yeah. But, but I will say that I, I am aware of the uh, importance of mentoring younger women. That, that's, a, that's a commitment of mine of mentoring younger women, and I mean that in a very casual way. I mean, I don't mean, you know, kind of training younger women to be uh, these grand leaders in the church. That's, that's not, that's great if that's happened, but if that happens, but that's not my objective. I really want to be um, a sounding board uh, and an encouragement, particularly for women of color, for all women, but particularly for women of color, so that one, they know that some of the things they're experiencing um, are real, that they're not crazy, right? Two, that they know that they are capable, they are strong, they are worthy and valuable, and they can do uh, anything in the church or outside of the church that they really put their hearts and minds to. They can do it. I want to be I, I don't know if, I don't think I'm a great nurturing person. I don't, but I do want, I want to work at that. I want to work on being someone who knows how to nurture, you know, the, the emotional side of, of, of women. And um, because, because I think that, that we experience lots of, of hurt in life. So, so why do I say these things? All right. So I, I want to, give to young women of color the things that I feel I did not get as I was kind of, I was alone. You know, if there were people there cheering me on, I just was so unaware. Um, they did not make themselves known to me. I wish that I had like uh, an older black woman mentor who walked alongside me and just said, Kalimpia, you're okay. You're not crazy. You know, you're no fool. Like I just, and I just didn't have that, you know? And so I just remember making a conscious decision um, that, okay, I didn't have that, but I'm going to try to be that for women who are coming along in the church now. I met two younger women uh, just this week, one who's, who's newly employed with uh, MCC, and then another one who's connected to campus ministries, but she ended up, she ended up at, at one of our Kingdom Builder meetings um, uh, this week. And so both of them were, it was like they were hungry for, uh, it, was like, it was almost like they were like, oh, 
a black woman, somebody we can talk to and say some things to. It just blew my mind, you know? Um, and so I just thought, okay, there, this, this is a need. This is a need. And so I want to be that person. That's my commitment to trying to be, it won't be perfect. It won't be without some flaw, but, but trying to be to some of these women uh, what, I, what I wished someone had been to me. I was just groping around in the dark trying to figure this stuff out and feeling like something was wrong with me most of the time. So yeah, that's, that's my commitment uh, to, to the women of the church. To kind of add to what Calinthia said, yeah, this part of nurturing and nourishing, I think that's what, I don't know if it's a stereotype, but no, that's, what, that's what I love doing. <laughs> to feed, um, I am a mother of three children, and I don't feel very nurturing, even though I have three kids, <laughs> often. <laughs> but I'm learning, you know, I'm learning how to do this. And yeah, just, I recognize there aren't that many Asian Mennonite pastor who's a woman and also a mom <laughs> just carrying different um, roles and responsibilities and even if I don't do it well to, to just be present struggling with my own struggles being trying to be fully who I am can actually encourage people they, they come and talk to me about that mentoring thing it's not let's be a mentor and a mentor mentee you know kind of relationship but just being present doing my thing and recognizing to invite others to come alongside. Being a pastor is a new thing for me. Being a mom, even if it's eight, you know, almost 18 years, it's, it's still hard. <laughs> and, and I don't know how you did it, Regina, um, but, but I'm learning and just, yeah, just being real with all that I am, who I am, um, is, is hope, hoping that, that that's a gift to, to our, my community and my church and, and the world, <laughs> this is the world, is what I, what I could offer. So I debate whether I should ask this question because I don't know, but I'm going to just ask it. But I, um, like, I think one of the, the questions that, that came to my mind as y'all were all talking was this idea about like living and being who you are authentically and that means, you know, your experiences, your gifts. I think one of the challenges that I have experienced in, in walking that line as a woman in the role that I carry, whatever, play, is I believe, like, I value bringing who I am to my experience, my work, what I do, because I am a whole person, because of the experiences, the lived life, the like the wisdom that I have like helps me in my work. So my experience though with working within systems is that that is not always welcome or appreciated when I bring who, who I am or it makes people uncomfortable or, and I just wonder like here I am sitting with these wise women right here and like I'm thinking like how do you how do you walk that line like sometimes I've thought maybe I just need to play the game <laughs> like maybe I just need to play the game which I don't know if I can but like sometimes it feels like it's between living authentically and whole or being successful in my career so I'm gonna keep it brief <laughs> I will just say that I am dealing with, in my mind, a situation right now that I need to decide whether I'm going to revisit a conversation that I was a part of last week that concerned students and there was a racial dynamic to nothing necessarily life or death, but it's a thing, right? And as I've thought about it over the weekend, over the long weekend, it's exactly what you said. Do I, you know, am I like one more time here, here I come bringing, bringing in, bringing in the racial dynamic of this situation and conversation that apparently no one else noticed, or if no one else noticed it, I don't know. So I'm bringing it here. Can we talk about it? And part of the decision I'm needing to make like it, the authentic thing to do 
would be to say, so here's a thing. Can we pick up this conversation? And can I say this about how I left that conversation? But I also recognize that bringing that into you know, bringing that conversation back up and saying, here's the thing, is one more way that, you know, I imagine, and I'm sure it is true, it has been true and will continue to be true in places, you know, that where people encounter me, where either, you know, there's the, here we go again, or how are we going to, like, or I'm cast in the role of help me understand how this is a thing. I'm like, really? <laughs> so yeah, that, and I, I think that that's, for me, that's part of the, you know, it's the daily moment by moment decision making. Is it worth, is that, is this conversation worth what I hope will happen if I have it? If it were a situation where, yes, this really is critically important because something bad is going to happen if, if there's not an intervention, then that makes it clearer. That makes it easier to say, yeah, this is a place where I just have to like talk about this. But this is more one of these kinds of things where it's a converse, it was like, it was white space, right? It's being in white space and needing to name stuff that happens in white space that white people don't necessarily notice or think is important or think matters in this particular instance. So that, so that doesn't answer the question, but it does... I mean, it answers the question in terms of it's, it's, it, is a, it is a day-by-day discernment process, a moment-by-moment discernment process. When and where am I going to risk, you know, as Calinthia said, out myself as the angry black woman, the irritated black woman, the black woman with a chip on her shoulder, the black woman who thinks everything is about race. And sometimes, you know, I know that I need to go there. And sometimes I'm like, do I need to go there? Or can I just, can I just like, not today? (laughs) Can I just not carry that weight today? Yeah, it's, I think it's a tough one. um, Trying to navigate what you're going to respond to and what you're not. Because there's so much that goes on. You can't possibly respond to everything. It will wear you out. Um, but walking into, I, I think it's beautiful to walk into a space and to bring all of who you are. I do. If we're talking about um, that fun word <laughs> that's also problematic, but diversity, is that we're all, depending upon where we're coming from, we're going to see different things and, and maybe omit some things, right? So, yeah, I try to, I try to show up as who I am. I'm not very good at pretending, but there are times when I am tired and my blood pressure is up and I just decide I'm not going to, I'm not going to respond or deal with this today. And I hope that somebody else catches it. And that's just, that's just called self-care. And the beautiful thing about that is that if you've done your work fairly well, oftentimes some of your white students in the room will catch it. I love when that happens, when a white student says something like, well, what about this other perspective over here? You know, um, those are the days I'm waiting for is when that actually happens like a lot. Jenny, yeah, I think show up as who you are, right? I think we all should, because that is what makes the space authentic. That's what makes the space interesting. It's what makes the space a a picture of God's kingdom. I really believe that. God's queendom, all of that. God's queendom, yeah, I like that. But it, but it is, yeah. Sometimes it does not feel welcomed. Like I get that. We need some support groups, you know, to just for me to stay real. I need people that I can connect with. Not everything that I want to say might not be the wisest thing for me to say it to all people in in all the rooms, you know, that. Um, that you're present at. And so I need a good group of people to say like, this happened, (laughs) what the heck, you know? And I think that happened like in women in leadership. Do you remember when we were in a gathering and something happened and we're like, did you see that? Like, no, was that real? For sure. And I think there was just this, uh, then what do we do? Is this something that we need to really bring up? Is this an issue? And that was a really great, example for me to see like okay I'm not crazy and I don't have to bring it out to everybody at once 
but there was enough people that we go, okay, we need to bring this up or say, or sometimes I just need to like vent, you know, <laughs> and, and maybe that's, and, and again, name the things, but then it doesn't have to, is it wise to bring it to the whole um, so that I can still be sane and, and be true. I think women of color, we, we really need to get together and we need to have this kind of support group. You know, Regina, you talked about lifeline. This has been a great, uh, it's been a lifeline for me. For you, Although we're all so far away, I wish I could hug you all and, you know, cry with you all um, and, and be with each other. This has been a lifeline for me and it's given me a lot of nourishment and nurture that I, that I need. We're coming to LA, Sue. We're coming. Come, oh, man. We're coming to visit you. <laughs> Definitely. I'll keep all my house, I'll keep my house in order. <laughs> oh, well, I think we're coming to the end of our time. I want to thank you all so much for taking the time to share from your, from your lives, from your hearts, from your thoughts, your wisdom. I personally, Jenny Castro, so appreciate all of you, and I'm thankful that you talked to me today. Thank you for the opportunity and for leading us in this discussion. Mm. Thank you, Jenny. Much appreciated. Jenny. Well, that's all the time we've got for this episode of the Peace Lab. A big thank you to Jenny Castro for hosting this week's conversation, as well as to Kalenthia, Regina, and Sue for being willing to participate and share with us, too. You can find this and all episodes of Peace Lab on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. And if you like the show, consider telling a friend, subscribing to our podcast feed, or giving us a good rating on Apple Podcasts. The Peace Lab is a production of both the Mennonite Inc. and the Peace and Justice Support Network, and our theme song was recorded by David Fisher-Fast. I'm Hannah Heinzicker, and that's all we have for this week. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.